Hello and welcome to the Centric Cities podcast from The Centric Lab. Some of this material will be familiar with listeners to the Conscious Cities podcast, where it was previously hosted. However, we decided to bring things in-house to further our intended direction with it. Centric are all about enhancing user experience in the built environment. And integral to this is mapping out ecosystems and looking for the friction and tension points that exist within. Well, that's what exactly this podcast aims to explore by interviewing professionals working at the coalface of the businesses helping design, build, manage, and dream of the cities of tomorrow. My name is Josh, and I'll be your host. In episode 11, I'm delighted to have Stefan Webb from the Future Cities Catapult on the show. Stefan has a broad career in the world of urban planning and now has a particular remit in co-running the Plantech strategy for the Future Cities Catapult. So, FCC, as I like to call them, have a remit from the UK government to help identify the new business opportunities for cities of the future and how through early investment, testing, a bit of R&D and nurturing, they can help make the journey smoother for UK business in the long run for those working in cities and how to make cities better. They regularly cover some fascinating topics and it's always been a personal pleasure to talk to Stefan, so I hope you'll enjoy listening to him too. Stefan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for inviting me on, Josh. Excellent. I was wondering whether you can give a basic introduction to yourself, um, how you got to be doing what you're doing today and what you are doing today. Yep, so um, I'm head of the digitising planning uh, programme here at Future City Catapult. Um, my background has been working for uh, generally public authorities in um, uh, London and the South East uh, in a variety of kind of roles um, that look at kind of corporate policy, uh, uh, politics, uh, uh, place and, and, and people. Um, and throughout that, the constant has been the planning system, the land use planning system, uh, as the key way really of, of kind of balancing some of those uh, uh, interests um, and what's been most revelatory kind of working um, at Future Cities Catapult is working with people that I'd never worked with before in those uh, public sector contexts so uh, data scientists, user researchers, service designers uh, uh, and the like um, and, and that really has opened a whole different world um, on my mind uh, and also uh, in terms of perhaps how the planning system can, can change and become uh, fit for the 21st century so um, um, part of that journey really started uh, with, with a couple of projects um, um, that uh, were about two years ago. Uh, one was in Greater Manchester, uh, working with uh, politicians uh, and uh, planners and utility companies. Uh, and they were a group of people um, sitting around a room uh, trying to work out what was going on in the city uh, uh, and in the future. Uh, and at, at the end, intersection of their interests, so utility companies being interested about their business, city planners being interested um, in the city, and uh, it kind of dawned on us really that uh, people sitting in a room uh, isn't the best way to collaborate and coordinate. It's a good way, and it's uh, an essential component, um, but it's not the only component. So um, from that, uh, we developed a a product, a software product called Growth Planner, um, and what it seeks to do is take uh, data information from the planning system, uh, where new development is going to happen, when, how big it is, um, and also similar kinds of data from uh, the, the utilities and infrastructure world, how much capacity is there uh, in, a, in a substation. Now, uh, we produced a kind of working prototype of this tool, um, and it was useful to, um, to everyone, but the most important thing to me came from a quote from uh, someone from RTPI actually said, wow, this is really good, looking at this piece of software, uh, it kind 
kind of starts to explain to people, uh, be they the public politicians or planners, uh, the kind of challenges and trade-offs in a simple but robust way. Could you just quickly explain RTPI? I'm Sorry, familiar, yes. But if you expand it out, I think it gives a great context. Yeah, so it's the, the Royal Town Planning Institute, the, the kind of professional uh, umbrella body for all public and private uh, planners. Um, <clears throat> so uh, that was, I think, a great example of how digital is a good way of uh, explaining complex issues, but uh, frankly, uh, not uh, dumbing them down by, by investing in how you communicate a complex issue. Uh, we think you can reap uh, lots of value. Um, there was another project uh, similarly that was kind of data focused. So um, in, as part of a, an exhibition called Big Bang Data at Somerset House, uh, we built a game. So uh, we built a, a game called London 2030. Six, um, that took lots of the data that most people don't look at, the appendices of the London plan, the appendices of the Thames Water Management Framework, all, all really exciting documents. Um, but what they are, uh, are in essence kind of forecasts, forecasts for how people who've investigated uh, bits of the city, how they think those bits of the city, those systems, those subsystems are going to change um, and, uh, and kind of model those forward. Uh, so what we did was uh, set out data scientists the tasks of kind of coming up with some simple data models what do all those different forecasts mean but then we applied our, our service designers, our creative technologists uh, to put a game on top of that uh, and, and the game asks you questions about, it puts you in the shoes of the mayor, so what do you invest in, do you invest in driverless cars or do you invest in cycle lanes uh, it puts you in the feet of a local councillor maybe, you know a, a pub has closed down uh, what do you want it to be, uh, should it be retail, should it be homes um, and, and what the game kind of spits out at the end is, is your London what your choices ha have led to um, and, and what it really says is that, that, that one, there are no right answers, uh, planning is, is about trade-offs um, but again it was another example of uh, how uh, good use of data and good investment in uh, uh, communicating complex issues uh, can really um, reap rewards um, so it's kind of those two were the really the germs of our uh, uh, future of planning program uh, where we're asking uh, a simple question um, how could uh, a more data driven and digitally delivered planning system benefit kind of everyone benefit developers uh, uh, the public, government, planners utilities um, because at the moment a lot of the narrative is uh, well the planning system is broken the housing market's broken uh, developers, um, the development mo real estate model's kind of broken and I think you know everyone gets a bit of a hard, uh, uh, hard game through that, uh, and, and part of our rationale is to kind of sit in the middle of all those different groups and say, well, what is a a, a future uh, that works for all of those people that, that kind of delivers um, uh, a better system? So that that started started us about eighteen months ago, uh, really uh, uh, kind of researching the question and, and developing prototypes, products, ideas for uh, uh, the future of, of the planning system. Awesome. I mean, one of the things you, you clearly highlighted is that it is a very big mess, almost. I mean, I mean, both from an upsetting point of view, it gets criticised as being a mess, and obviously you are discussing it as being a form of like agent for change. That it is, it's a way to listen, it's a way to adapt, it's a way to help. Uh, embed change within environments based on understanding and data. But something I have a question is that is that too big? 
a responsibility. It is something around Plantech about um, reducing down departments or understanding certain processes and hierarchies. Mm-hmm. Like, do we do we actually need to relook at the planning procedures, not just in the UK, but maybe globally? Because I think the problems that you know major cities in the UK face, such as you know London, Manchester, Bristol, Leeds, Liverpool, uh, Birmingham, etc., are also felt in cities from San Francisco yep. through to New York, Nairobi, um, and you know it, it, across India and places like Delhi. That the when so much is being asked of urban environments, you know, do do we how do we need to break it up, or is it actually? It is a, b- a better data question that can be organised. I'm going to kind of open that big question up to you. Right. So uh, a number of responses to that, I guess. Uh, your essential point that is planning a mess, kind of. Um, so what you get a lot in the popular press is, well, we need to accelerate uh, the planning system, uh, and we do that by deregulating. We do that by having fewer planning rules. Um, and I kind of disagree with the premise of that. Yeah. Uh, in that if you want uh, a speedier planning system, and by the way, you should want a higher quality one that delivers the kind of outcomes that you want, um, it, that doesn't necessarily mean deregulation. It means how can you make the system work better and, and, and faster. Um, and <clears throat> But the mess bit, I guess, does come from, well, the what guides planning in the UK is the 1947 Town and Country Planning Act, uh, and that's when planning was quite simple, um, and you could do a planning application on a few sheets of paper, um, but what we've done since 1947 is, is layer upon layer of additional regulations and requirements, which, again, many of which are justified as our understanding of environmental impact and social impact uh, kind of changes, um, but we haven't really redesigned the, the service and the system around it, so uh, certainly planning and or government generally uh, has come relatively later to the, the fields of, of user design uh, user-led design and, and service design uh, and the planning system also um, and I think that's where lots of the opportunities are is to say well this is the kind of context we're in today let's not just get rid of the rules let's try and understand what uh, uh, regulation and what the requirements of uh, a planning system are to different different users uh, and see if we can get rid of some of that that complexity um, and mess um, and then maybe there's some things that, that say well why do we do this? You know, uh, my, a good colleague of mine, uh, uh, Scott Kane, always talks about um, uh, user researchers as professional three-year-olds uh, are continually asking why. Um, and the planning system, because it's quasi-judicial, uh, fears change and, and doesn't really ask itself uh, why enough uh, to then flush out uh, uh, why not and, and what could be. Uh, so I think that that's um, a lot of the, the, the opportunity. Unity, I guess, um, uh, and also I think there's a there's a dichotomy within uh, uh, planning that uh, between uh, Robert Moses. So Robert Moses was uh, uh, the chief planner and basically the mayor of of, of New York, even though he was unelected uh, for a period of kind of 30 years, and he drove from very much from the top down by mastery of the planning system of finance, of politics, uh, the the roads that you get, and the uh, uh, getting rid of lots of uh, uh, social housing in, in New York. 
Uh, and again, at the end of his period, you had Jane Jacobs, who was obviously uh, uh, rising up against that. Uh, and I think uh, data and technology can help us uh, rethink a little uh, that, that dichotomy, because it, it's not that uh, simple. Uh, and it, taking those two lenses uh, enables you to think about uh, what is appropriate uh, to be delivered from the top down and, and, and what uh, can come uh, from the bottom up. Great. That, yeah, seven, that's a great um, explanation as to kind of the nuances and how the industry has just developed, to use a pun, um, from, from, you know, 1947, obviously a very, very different time um, and the layering and layering. And I think it's very fair to say that in very few markets, complete deregulation has led to um, a lot of opportunity and solution that benefits all. Um, you know, I will say this, you don't have to make any comments, but I see this very much in the financial industry as well. So, it you know, it helped a few, it helped a lot, it didn't help everyone. So, you know, yes, there is a lot of demand, particularly from the house builders um, and some of the sort of development industry to uh, speed up the process, but it isn't about deregulation. I think you're bang on it is about quality in that way. But when we're talking about businesses um, and we're talking about almost a a broad, almost convoluted um, industry, we also find that business exists in, in, in and is created from inertia. And you know, as cities emptied out when they left gaps in infrastructure that were perhaps filled by the creatives that were seeking their own mental solace. So, you know, throughout the you know 1980s or the 70s and 80s, as certainly a lot of New York um, moving from the kind of the post-war era where it was about the suburbs and the city was used for a certain purpose, space was kind of emptied and bottom out, and it was filled with a lot of the creative art scene from um, Basquiat and his his cohorts. And we found some of the most defining pieces of artwork were created in that late 70s, early 80s period. People like, I believe it was Gordon Matter Clark, who would uh, find these buildings about to be demolished and create these spirals, these these outcut, you know, these cutouts of the, the architecture going through, which would never be created today. But this this existed because of a problem. Yeah. Equally, you know, here here in London, um, you know, we're we're sitting in Clerkenwell at the moment, and we you know we we neighbour Shoreditch. Um, this area in the nineties was was almost um, desolate. There was barely anyone here. It was a series of old factories that we weren't seen as any good. Um, I, you know, I, I've learned that people were told in the 1990s when these great, amazing warehouses were being turned into loft apartments that you know, the market was saying, oh, you'll never get a resale value in Clerkenwell. That'll never work. <laughs> But hey ho, you know, all of a sudden people flooded in, you know, bands were taking over warehouses to set up their own live work studios. Equally going around Shoreditch, we found that the meanwhile projects were were being delivered more and more and more because some of these, I say bigger long-term landowners were realizing that they bordered the city of London. So they were a little bit more flexible about who they might let their properties to. So they were, you know, they were allowing these kind of the, almost the, the the accident to occur and it existed within this kind of inertia. Um, so if we take that now, when we start to kind of remove this inertia, if we expedite everything, if we if we uh, streamline and coordinate and perhaps over-professionalise the system, are we perhaps removing some of the problems of the past that actually made uh, a lot of great work? You know, so in in plan tech, are you guys looking at perhaps the unintended consequences of you know of over-professionalising uh, a system? 
Uh, so there's, there's so much to go out there. I'll, I'll kind of s start uh, from your point about kind of gaps in the city and, and, and the art projects in New York. My, my favourite art project. So when I was at the Greater London Authority, I helped uh, set up the London Legacy Development Corporation and worked on the kind of master planning of the, the Olympic site for Legacy. I hate that word, but you know, but what happens <laughs> after uh, the Olympics left town. Uh, and there was a fabulous blog called Trespassing the Olympic Site. Uh, and it was a guy who must have been about my age. Uh, when I first moved to London, I lived in Bow, um, and of a Saturday evening, you'd just go out the door and listen, and, and you'd find all of these vacant warehouses. And, and this guy must have yeah, uh, gone to these warehouse parties, same as me, uh, and, and he found it quite tragic that they were all being torn down for the Olympics. Now, to be fair, they were, you know, you, you, in that area, you had uh, Europe's largest fridge mountain, and, and it's easy uh, for the Ian Sinclairs of this world to kind of eulogise around these environments, and, and then there's certain bits of, of, of that kind of narrative that I think are really important, uh, but they weren't great. But this was a fabulous piece of art where this guy had gone and set up photos and he'd climb on these cranes and these half-pulled-down buildings. Um, now, uh, I think how we, we understand these spaces and places and, and the uses uh, over time is, is really important. Um, now... Uh, as with the application of technology in any field, you know, it can be used for uh, good or evil or, or, you know, different purposes. Um, and I do think there are ways to use uh, Plantech to, to ensure that uh, people are uh, keeping those things that are of value. So a pet project that I'd love to do outside of, of the catapult is keep London interesting. Um, and my, my hypothesis, especially in a, in a post-Brexit world, is there's a, almost a tipping point somewhere where even your uh, multinational investors and, and financiers, they're coming for, to London, yes, for, you know, corporate taxation and uh, uh, nice apartments and, and this, that and the other. Um, but uh, the, the cultural offer of London uh, is something we don't actually measure. We, we value it, um, but we don't value it enough, I don't think. Um, and there's a tipping point where uh, that investment, they, the investor says, actually, Zurich, I'll oh, sod it. You know, I'm, I'm, the, the balance where culture uh, and the unique offer of London goes below a kind of invisible line and everyone buggers off to to somewhere else. Now, uh, so I think there are ways that you can apply this technology for the good. Um, and this actually then gets to the, the professionalization point. So your previous question about well planning, it's complex, it's messy, uh, and you know, it's not unique of planning. I think in many other industries, uh, that complexity breeds professionals. It breeds uh, and requires uh, people to help you navigate um, some of those complexities. Uh, and I think the op opportunity from, from Plantech is actually to positively, for want of a better word, deprofessionalize. So, uh, uh, and this, uh, as I think I said at the beginning, you know, I, I, I love planners and the, the work that they do is incredibly important uh, but I think that knowledge that uh, is held within uh, public and private planners uh, can and should uh, be dispersed for others to, to use as well. So um, I'm really influenced recently by uh, a book called The Future of the Professions by, by Daniel Suskind uh, and uh, it, it paints a picture of where actually you know, increasingly intelligent machines as he put it um, become our professionals. 
uh, and the costs of accessing those prof new professionals, those digital professionals, uh, are much reduced. Uh, and that means that there are far fewer barriers to entry, um, both kind of financially, but also in terms of the, the way in which, as you build digital tools, you can build them to communicate uh, and engage with different audiences. So I, I do think that actually the... the, the the, the opportunity from Plantech is to give the power and knowledge of, of professions to, to everyone uh, that should enable, therefore, uh, people to more effectively, if they should so want, kind of lobby and, and, and create coalitions, let's say, to create or protect the next Shoreditch uh, um, and, and, and maybe even you know, become uh, a company that, that creates that social impact as they go. Uh, so it's, it's a challenging one for the profession, I think, um, where where we do think a lot about plan tech is where it's freeing planners to plan so actually you know both on the public and private planning side if you're automating the lower uh, value or low value added kind of tasks what planners are good at and what they really like doing is kind of thinking across boundaries that'll be more challenging uh, for increasingly intelligent machines uh, so you know it's uh, a bit of a utopia but I do see that where that uh, vision of where the planners are doing more higher value added stuff and, and really are doing engaging with, with communities but the means uh, of uh, uh, engaging in the built environment and creating in the built environment uh, is far more democratic because it's uh, been distributed yeah I mean I, I, I do want to come on to the idea of um, more community engagement I mean I know here in, here in London it's been established I don't know how successful it's come but the Creative Land Trust in order to yeah. kind of find a legal way to protect the actual, you know, the, the the red line of the property on a map to ensure that its its future use is protected in that way. Um, but I want to come back to looking at where within Plantech you're finding most um, kind of success or revelations in where you think, because obviously this is a this is a big project. It's an ongoing project. The, the reality is because it's it's very nuanced. It's a very big. There are lots of players and parties. Where do you feel the kind of the immediate impact is going to be? Is this in, in standards and, and data standards? Is this in smart contracts? Or is this in shared pools um, of, you know, software as a service uh, products? You know, people like the ordinance survey are making, you know, more geographical data available. The land registry service are making the, you know, who owns what type of property more available through different products. Where, where are you finding the kind of the, the great uh, hazards of the moment for Plantech? And, and where do you see the kind of the future uh, applications developing within it? So I think you touched on all the right things there. Uh, I was going to say, unfortunately, uh, where it has to start, unfortunately, is is around kind of data standards and uh, uh, greater uh, accessibility and openness generally to to that data. So, um, one of the biggest opportunities, I think, uh, is thinking of um, consultancy that's provided today as a, as a software app, as a, as a, a software program. So, both uh, real estate developers and public planners. Um, require um, different kinds of analysis uh, that's very data heavy. So let's give a practical example. Um, all local planning authorities, give or take, do something called a retail town centre assessment. Uh, most local authorities do something called a strategic industrial land study. These are generally outsourced consultants who then go and find data um, in an analogue way, <laughs> uh, collect it, put it into an Excel spreadsheet, do a bit of analysis, put it into a PDF report. 
Um, and that happens on the developer side as well. So a developer has to uh, respond to uh, those kind of evidence bases that the local planning authority sets out. So uh, let's say a retailer will have to do, in essence, their own retail and town centre study. This is the impact of my development on the local retail um, uh, economy. And they'll do the same thing. They'll get consultants to go and manually find data, put it in a spreadsheet, put it in a PDF. Um, now, if everyone's do using pretty much the same data, which is, we think, very true, if everyone's using pretty much the same methodology, um, if you can standardise the data that feeds into those spreadsheets and those PDFs, you can get rid of those spreadsheets and PDFs by creating a, a software tool. Now, that's, to my mind, where there's the most um, immediate impact, but it can only be enabled by uh, uh, that data being, being opened. Um, similarly, if you come at it from another angle, if you want to better communicate any given part of the, the planning system, where, where I think there's lots of opportunity, um, we're, we're looking at some projects involving environmental impact assessments, which are probably the most data and regulatory kind of rich um, bit, of, bit of planning. Um, and most interest, understandably, is, well, how do we communicate what we've produced already better? But it still, to my mind, comes back to uh, standardising some of the data so that you can have certainty as a software developer or as anyone investing in this area um, around your product working not only in uh, Dorset, uh, but also in Dover and Dartford. Um, I don't know why I picked those places. Uh, <laughs> uh, so I think that's where there are some of the early opportunities and critically, you know, kind of government gets it. Government, uh, as you mentioned, around uh, Ordnance Survey and Land Registry, the Geospatial Commission, that are looking at how they can open up more of their data, not just because it's a good thing to do often, uh, but to help others uh, build on that, to, to deliver uh, productive uh, products and services. Um, so I, I think that's the initial area. The, the next wave you'll get is, uh, I think the ability to interrogate more systematically what becomes big data. So the more data that's open and standardised, uh, the more you can start training uh, uh, AI or, or some kind of machine learning, natural language processing, whatever it might be, uh, on these now large and consistent data sets. Um, so, uh, and that's where I, I think there's there's going to be real interest, or I have a real interest in understanding what's the dividing line between public digital and data infrastructure and uh, uh, AI and private. Mm -hmm. um, so the other point you mentioned was around kind of uh, people uh, coming up with kind of interoperable and uh, software architectures. Um, what's really good about government's involvement today, um, they had a planning delivery fund before Christmas. Uh, there was an innovation stream to that. Uh, a number of the winners uh, are looking at kind of reinventing uh, the planning application system. Uh, but they want to, and, and government and ourselves are going to encourage them to do it in an open and interoperable way so that you're sharing codes and so that bit of the public infrastructure uh, is, is uh, um, works everywhere. Um, when you get to questions of AI, um, one of the things we've been thinking about is um, uh, can a machine uh, identify the most optimal, in very commas, yeah. uh, developable land better than the market? So what happens now in uh, planning is a, a local authority uh, does a, a call for sites, which is in essence asking the public, but mainly developers and, and landowners, 
what do you want or think could be developed uh, in the future. Um, that then goes through a process of kind of sifting, in essence, uh, and comes up with your strategic housing land availability assessment, uh, your SHLA, which uh, is <laughs> one of the most important things about cities that no one knows anything anything about, which is, you know, this big industrial park, this uh, maybe this school in, in 10 years or 15 years, we think will be housing. Um, uh, so we think that process, uh, if you have more open and consistent data, you can train machines uh, to find sites that that maybe developers might not, uh, uh, and uh, uh, the question then becomes: Once you've trained a machine to find optimally developable land, who owns that? Uh, we know there are people in the market, I think, trying to do this. Um, to my mind, uh, there's a, that version. There's also a version where someone like Homes England, um, the kind of national regeneration body, uh, should they own that AI? Should they be investing in uh, identifying land? so that they can find it a bit before the market, they can invest in it to achieve public value. Um, and that then, I think, in terms of what's the third or what might be the third phase after AI, um, uh, there's a gentleman I think we both know called uh, Indy Yohar uh, from Dark Matter Labs who came up with a superb uh, concept at the end of last year, I think, around architecture for outcomes. So in an increasingly uh, uh, digitized built environment with, with BIM, uh, but with uh, a software inside the building, understanding how it operates, linking to perhaps you know our performance management systems and l learning from the WeWorks of this world who are analysing space uh, and its use uh, far better than many others. Um, shouldn't the contract between architect and developer be about the outcomes of that building? Um, and obviously, I then think about the outcomes of uh, uh, the planning system. Uh, I think what's fundamental about planning is it seeks to um, fundamentally um, mitigate the negative externalities from changing the built environment uh, and accentuate the positives to achieve certain outcomes. Um, but we're not very good uh, at measuring that, uh, to put it politely. So uh, we're thinking, I think that would be like a third wave of um, uh, using uh, um, building information, using advances in neuroscience and behavioural science in particular to really understand are the buildings and the developments and the places that we are planning um, as public and, and private uh, uh, planners, um, are they achieving the outcomes we want? Because at the moment we invest an awful lot in uh, uh, environmental impact assessments, economic impact assessments, uh, 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 social impact assessments, but they're not as good as they should be and we don't often check the answers. We don't check whether we, uh, uh, whether the impacts that were forecast were achieved. Uh, and I think uh, a more digital land planning and kind of development system, it, it, it would be able to do that as a, as a platform and, and understand those things uh, far more quickly, more granularly, and improve the models uh, um, on the fly. Nice. I mean, to me, it screams that when it comes to you know uh, voting governments etc from a public point of view something like this 
I think it, it should be in the eyes um, of a citizen to understand who is potentially owning this data because arguably money moves where money can be made yep. and it depends who controls that voice of authority. So there's, you know, you could say on one hand, oh, do we want the state owning everything? Are yep. we going far too to the left? Or do we just leave the free market? Do we move fast forward to the right? Will that, will that be inclusive? Um, th- this is really the idea of um, kind of citizen engagement. Yep. This is, uh, so we, we touched on it before, it's something I wanted to it definitely comes to go. I know it's something that you guys are focused on for a variety of reasons. So, in you know earlier on in this conversation, we talked about uh, how citizens can sometimes communicate, or you know you were talking about uh, particular projects of you know what will your you know what, what will not the wrong word of legacy, but you know what will what will what do we want London to be? What do we want our cities to be? How how do we pull this type of information? So, um, you know, in a slightly weird way, I, I want to ask this question that. Um, you know, verbal planning success. You know, should we flip the conversation on its head that it's no longer about a top view kind of down of well, let's res- you know respond to this development, respond to this plan, but can we ask more and more of every individual, and whether that be a um, an immigrant-based family living on a social housing estate or living in the suburbs, whether it be a um, you know a group of young professionals living somewhere in a city, everyone has their own historical. Um, you know, perception about what cities and city life should be. One of the great things about cosmopolitan cities are the influxes and influences mm. of different uh, ethnic backgrounds, different cultural backgrounds. Um, is there a way, do you feel, that's sensible and structured to start making cities more responsive in a much more sort of natural, ongoing way to all these types of voices? Or do you think there's kind of too many cooks spoiling broth? <laughs> Um, so I think to start at the end of that, that uh, I like the notion of subsidiarity. So, so uh, all decisions should take place at the lowest sensible level. Now, now, how you define that is uh, a difficult challenge. Um, but seeking to push decision making down to the lowest sensible level is is, is important. Uh, and I think as as we touched upon the professionalization of planning through digital means should enable you to do that more. So if you can give the digital tools uh, to people to understand some of the complexities and trade-offs, that should mean that should change that sub- level of subsidiarity. So the good example, um, the, the, the project that I want to do uh, is uh, lots of people are interested in kind of 3D models and uh, uh, AR views of this is what the development's going to look like, which is fine, but I want people to be able to interact with that um, and say, well, that building's too tall. I don't like it, which is you know, quite a, a fair refrain many, in many instances. But for them to be able to make the building smaller, like in AR or VR or some means, and then to be told the consequences. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's that... Uh, and those consequences might be, you know, there's £100,000 less business rates available for your local authority, which means two fewer social workers, whatever yeah. it might be. Um, there's now um, far less community infrastructure levy. There's now uh, fewer jobs. Um, and I think as you start to uh, give that complexity, as it were, but in digestible formats to more people, um, that will enable more people to to engage. Um, and, and one of the interesting things that, that we've come across in Plan Tech is we have a kind of inverse digital divide almost. So, uh, and I'm guessing this is probably happening more in the right, wider world, where 
oh, people say, well, what about all this technology you're pushing? What about uh, people that don't have access to a phone? You know, that increasingly small fraction. Um, I say, well, they're absolutely perfectly served by the planning system as it is today. They're the ones who've got free time to go to a community hall or a shopping centre to look at a funny model. Uh, they're the ones that can write down the address from the laminated planning notice and, and write a letter to the local authority. But if you are a digital native, hate the term, but if you're someone that, that, that lives their life uh, through digital means, the planning system is completely inaccessible. So, um, and, and interestingly, uh, many of those people uh, whom it's inaccessible to are the ones that might be more positive uh, about change in their area and they might have different ideas uh, for, for, for change in their area. And I think it, it kind of comes down to, I think Alistair Parvin from Wikihouse uh, talked about uh, some research that he'd seen that uh, looked at how people engage with, with, with planning and there's different ways in which you can, you can ask questions about, well, this is the plan for your lo local area uh, and we think it means 500 new homes, let's say. There's, there's a way of also asking people about planning that says, what do you like? Would, would five stories um, in this half a mile block, would that be acceptable? Um, now, the answer's the same. The answer is 500 new homes. Uh, and I think uh, getting to thinking about the conversations we have with people, and again, it's investing in the design communication, the user research, um, the uh, behavioural and neuros neuroscientific research that, that allows us to not kind of trick people through behavioural science, but actually to get to the core of what they want from their neighbourhood, from their city, from, from, from their place. Um, and I think going back to your earlier point about community uh, land trusts, that democratisation of planning and kind of real estate knowledge, uh, I, I think can be very empowering. So community land trusts, neighbourhood planning, I think are, are good things, um, but they're still not yet, I think, enough of a route into being a developer. So even community land trusts, um, it's a legal means to, to, as you say, draw that, that boundary, but invariably most um, self-builders and community land trusts they're well off. Uh, one, at least one of them is an architect. Um, one of them will have some construction experience, uh, and they're necessary. But how do you take that even further down? How do you democratise um, some of that knowledge? Because frankly, you know, some of the big uh, developers I, I talk to, particularly the old school ones, it's kind of quite simple. There's lots of risk involved for sure, uh, and by the way digitizing can kind of de-risk for everyone, big developers, small developers. But the notion that uh, uh, being a real estate developer is complex, I'd, I'd uh, decry. I think planning is a bit complex, construction is a bit complex, but uh, as you, at the core is, as you suggested, you know, money seeking to, to find a home. Uh, and some of your bigger developers, you know, they'll look at site, they'll go, okay, that's how much I can get on it, that's 20% margin. They'll do a calculation in their head and that invest millions of pounds on that basis, well, how can we democratise uh, some of that knowledge to enable people to go, oh, there's a small site around the corner, and uh, actually I can do more of the planning process myself, I can do more of the architecture myself, so yes, I still will need a, an architect and a planner, but it'll be less costly, uh, and I can think about uh, engaging in it now. So I think that, uh, you know, it, it's, it's not even, yes, it's partly the citizen engagement thing, 
been, but it's kind of being more active participants and shapers. And that might be one of the good ways of doing that is literally having a stake in the land, um, but also being shown like that, that kind of uh, planning example, the consequences of your actions, being able to engage in a more sophisticated way uh, without um, being dumped, without the debate being dumbed down. Uh, and I think there's lots of, lots of opportunities for that. Excellent. I love the, um, what, what I've always loved about Plantech and what you guys are quite um, engaged on is, is looking at that element of how, how through technology can we, yes, use that term democratise, but make accessible information. Yes. Um, and, and I think it's quite a language translation. This is something I, I've, I've kind of had a, a lot of experience in the past in, in, in previous jobs in how do, you, how, do you, how do you find two different languages and two different yeah. groups to communicate uh, and, and have, and I think empathy mm. is that, you know, this is, this is a term that's come up from a few different, um, you know, speakers on the pod, but people who in general we communicate with people, certainly in cities, when you have so many diverging demands and factors and, and loads of uh, desires and complications that added with the stresses of, of one's own life, which, you know, life is more complex. You know, we may have great wealth available, but we, we have great complexity that we're, we're sometimes losing a certain barrier of, of being able to step back and take on board and understand the nuances of why and what is happening. And I think the idea of, yes, um, I, I, I love the idea of, um, you know, a family sitting at home on a Sunday going, right, everyone put on your AR helmets. We're going to review some of the local planning policies yeah. and let, let's see what we, you know, this this is SimCity. This is the game that we, you know, you played as a child. Um, I know I certainly did. Probably why I love doing this podcast and stuff. Um, but it, but it, it is about uh, embedding a sense of empathy, and that co- that communication appears to be broken mm. at the moment. I think that's one of the things you guys are really um, championing well. So again, we've come to the end because I know you're a busy man and have um, things to do. This is kind of a question that I generally ask at the end because. Everyone loves to talk about tech. It's exciting. It's fun. Um, but it, equally, it is the uh, the avenue to help create some of the solutions. It's not the solution in itself. So as someone who's working within um, technology quite heavily, but also you're working within cities. Cities are based out of everything from people to materials to experiences to, uh, to you know, to, to moments of joy and love. You know, these, these almost ephemeral uh, elements that can't be quantified. But, you know, what is something that you are really hoping hoping matures more um, uh, and whether it is advanced through technology what do you kind of want to see more deployed in cities is it tech or is it something completely different so I think um, we have uh, I have Dan Hill uh, now of Arup uh, at City of Sound um, to thank for my mascot whoever I've, whenever I've been at the Catapult uh, and there's a guy called Cedric Price who was an architect in the 60s and 70s when there wasn't that much technology who said technology is the answer what was the question um, so that that kind of how we understand what was the question links to your points about empathy so um, uh, I've recently albeit very late in the day been uh, binging on parks and recreations uh, and as a kind of ex uh, local government worker it, a lot of it resonates um, but that ability um, to go to a town hall meeting and uh, empathise with people with strongly different and maybe not particularly logical views uh, uh, is, is, I think, really interesting in tech. How, what is the uh, new, cracking on the sound, tool, but like the new uh, polis, the new kind of civic hub 
uh, and civic discussion because um, that's so important. And, and yes, maybe it is. Do uh, uh, listeners look at uh, our city information model um, uh, video that a colleague Yun and I did? And, and the idea is some, uh, you know, the, at the hub of, of a city or it could be a community is this kind of digital model where, where people can have debates or where people can think about the consequences of, of policy, of development. And that includes, and this is way too utopian, but, you know, in the future, a politician's manifesto should come with some kind of uh, um, a model. So some kind of, these are my policies and these are how I think those impacts will play out in a kind of visual data underpinned way. Uh, that might be some time off. Um, uh, but, but at the core of kind of understanding what was the question, uh, when I came to the catapult, user research was was uh, completely new to me. And, and to be honest, I was quite sceptical um, because, you know, well, planners know best and, and you know, real estate developers know best. Uh, and over time, I've seen the massive value in, in that kind of approach. But there's an interesting tension there uh, uh, with certainly behavioural science and neuroscience. So uh, someone I picked up and met in a, in a previous world um, is a guy called Dan White from The Behaviourist to a, a behavioural science SME and I brought him in uh, for a kind of show and tell with our, our user researchers and, and there was a real tension between uh, how those uh, fields and disciplines come together um, and I think that's a good tension by the way <laughs> my job here is managing all of those tensions across <laughs> software design and user researchers and, and, and all of that because that's where, where the beauty comes um, so I think the evolution of, of behavioural science and neuroscience and how it links into in particular how we, how we research, how we engage and how we um, develop uh, cities, products and services around that I think is so important and fascinating because uh, um, it'll be challenging, it'll be challenging to, to lots of uh, um, I wouldn't say entrenched but like professionals to, to establish disciplines um, but hey, we're going to get that from left, right, and centre uh, going forward. So um, uh, let's let's kind of prepare for it and, and embrace it. Excellent. That's uh, obviously music to my ears. <laughs> um, Steph, thank you very much. Um, if someone wants to ask you a question, wants to hear more about what you have to say about what you do here, but also you personally, how, how can someone find out about you and get more information? On so obviously LinkedIn uh, on Twitter, mainly at Steph underscore W. And uh, if you go to Future Seas Catapult and look at our future of planning pages, there's blogs, there's, there's research, there's lots of stuff there. Excellent. Steph, thanks very much for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Josh. Thank you to Steph for coming on the pod. So much covered, so much more to do with the planning system and how we can get it digitized and more importantly, into a standardized format. Personally, gotta say, I love that the thing that he's most looking forward to is how the cognitive sciences are gonna be having an impact going forward. So to find out more about what Steph and his great colleagues are up to, then be sure to head over to the SEC website, which is futurecities.catapult.org.uk. So. Thanks again for listening. We're up on iTunes, so if you haven't found us from there, please do find us there next time. And if you would be so kind to leave us a very lovely review, it always helps. If you want to stay up to what the Centric Lab are doing more, then do head over to the website, thecentriclab.com. You'll find our newsletter there, culture section, etc. If you'd rather just see what we have to tweet and talk about, then our handle is at thecentriclab. Any questions about the pod, do send them to podcast at thecentriclab.com. My name's Josh. Thanks very much for your time. Bye.